On this week's prequel episode, we follow up on our Forrest Gump listener polls, learn about Disney's Dark Age, and preview The Great Mouse Detective. Hello and welcome back to this film is with the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. It's another prequel episode. We have every segment and quite a bit of feedback to get to, so we're going to get right into it with our patron shoutouts. I put up with you because your father and mother were our finest patrons, that's why. We have one new free member patron this week, and that is David Spencer. Thank you, David, for subscribing over on Patreon. Again, one day, we'll, if we get enough of these, I won't read them all. I don't know. Who cares? We don't have an, <laughs> we're not a big enough podcast where it matters. If we start having thousands of patrons, then yeah, probably won't read every free member. But as it is, we get one of these every couple of weeks. It's not a big deal. So appreciate you following us over on Patreon. And maybe one day you'll decide to upgrade and we see all that sweet bonus content you're missing out on. But we do, as always, want to recognize our Academy Award winning patrons. And they are Nathan B., Vic Hammer, Matilde, Steve from Arizona, Paul. Jeff Niederhofer, Teresa Schwartz, Ian from Wine Country, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby Says, Oh Right, The Feedback, The Feedback for TFIL, The Feedback Written Specifically for TFIL, TFIL's Feedback, That Darn Skag, V. Frank, and Alina Starkov. Thank you all for continuing to support us. We appreciate and love you all very much. Katie, let's see what the people had to say about Forrest Gump. Yeah. Well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Well, much like myself, the people had thoughts. Lots of thoughts. <laughs> uh, starting on Patreon, we had... Which we appreciate. I don't want to... Yes. They almost sounded like I was saying like, ugh. But no, <laughs> we love it. <laughs> uh, so on Patreon, we had seven votes for the movie, zero for the book. Kelly Napier, um, who uh, the patron who requested Forrest Gump, said... I don't think this is the first time I've requested an episode where Katie ended up hating the book, and for that I apologize. Do you remember what other? <laughs> I think she, I think Kelly is referring to the Born Identity. Oh, which, yeah. in all fairness, I did not hate. No, I it say, just wasn't my thing. Yes, I yeah. thought it was a little dated and a little boring. Yeah, but I didn't. I don't hate know it. if I would say you hated it necessarily. Yeah, not not anywhere near. No, what like I hated this one. No. Uh, Kelly went on to say, I swear I'm not doing it on purpose. Similarly to Katie, I hated this book. I even realized partway through that I think I already knew that this book was terrible. I have a vague memory of my dad reading the book after the movie came out and telling me that it wasn't good. I kind of wish I had remembered that before I requested y'all cover this, <laughs> but at least we all had to go through this terrible experience together. You know, it's Forrest Gump. We would yeah. have, we would have done, we it done it eventually. We would have done it eventually. Yes. Better get it over yes. sooner. With I it, guess. I was surprised it took us as long as it did to get to us. Yeah. Get to it. Um, I think the thing I hated in the book most was the increasingly ridiculous vignettes the author inserts Forrest into. When did it jump the shark? Was it when he accidentally became a wrestler, or when he went to space, or when his best friend was an orangutan? Or when he accidentally kidnapped a naked Raquel Welch. It Something just, you it, didn't even mention in the Because it was think. so stupid. Yeah. No. Um, it just got so absurd as it kept going. The ending of the book was just terrible. I truly believe the forest we met throughout the book would never have just walked away from his child. Yes, he provides for him financially, but I just cannot believe he would have been okay with not having a role in parenting his child. 
I think the thing the movie does the best is the elevation of the characters of Jenny, Bubba, and Lieutenant Dan. Removing the multitude of ancillary characters from the book and honing in on these three characters and how they impact Forrest's life was a really good decision. I think the biggest reason why the movie doesn't ever seem to go far enough about taking a true stance on anything is related to the fact that, like you mentioned in the episode, this is just meant as a nostalgia trip for a certain age group. I love the soundtrack for this movie. Outside of the pop music used throughout to help ground us in whatever time period we're currently in, the score is beautiful. Alan Silvestri does an amazing job of tying a distinct musical theme throughout the movie, which subconsciously helps the viewer feel like everything is connected. I would agree. I think it's got a great score, uh, and specifically orchestral score uh, in, in relation to the soundtrack. Um, and I, so much that I'd forgot this was the, when the theme started. Well, and mm-hmm. I guess I noticed it in the trailer when I was editing the prequel, but... When that theme started playing, I had forgotten that was Forrest Gump. Like, that was from Forrest Gump. That song was, like, in my brain. And, like, clearly it was in there bouncing around um, because it is such a memorable piece of music, like the main theme. But I I had forgotten it was even from Forrest Gump. And I was like, oh, that's right. It's from this. Also, Mm -hmm. I think it sounds like some other stuff Silvestri did. If I I could be wrong about that. Like, Like most composers, they... You can kind of tell when there's yeah. some stuff that's like, ah, oh, it's a little like this, that's a little like that, blah, blah, blah. But anyways. And I totally agree um, with Kelly's point, too, about elevating those three characters, Jimmy mm-hmm. Bubba yeah. and Lieutenant Dan, um, and getting rid of many, many other characters that we meet in the book. Yeah. Um, that is something that when a movie is better than the book that we often see. Yeah. Our next comment was from Nathan B., who said, This is a choice between two bad things, but one is significantly worse, so I clearly have to pick the film. I think the film is too determined to be heartwarming and ultimately creates a sort of tourist's look at suffering in the U.S. Forrest gets to drop into and pop out of the suffering of other groups. While it definitely affects him, his barrier of not really understanding what is going on and his ability to jump back to a life of wealth and comfort mutes that effect. I would agree with that. I just want to jump in real quick because I think it goes on to kind of extrapolate on that. But I think that is kind of a good way of putting Mm -hmm. a lot of what our criticisms were, where it just feels because the suffering is treated at such a surface level and because the way Forrest Gump interacts with it all, it lets the viewer interact with it on a very surface level like i guess surface level is a good way it works but like you're reacting you're you're sort of as a viewer you're viewing these very uh traumatic experiences and and times and and throughout america's history um so like with like a layer of gloss and sheen Mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't really reflect what happened and it allows you to kind of have a nostalgia for even horrible things i guess like again mm-hmm. like i'm thinking of like the scene where the uh the segregation scene yeah where they're not you know the the governor is like blocking the door and um they're desegregating the schools and the student the one student walks in and like forrest like grabs her notebook and like hands it to her the way it all plays out the movie isn't completely like saying oh this is like like it's not it, it's treating it with some level of like uh, seriousness and depth for sure and wants you to like be like wow this was bad but at the same time because the way we interact with it through forest is this like fun funny like thing it makes it feel 
Uh, and it's actually funny. This is similar, and I don't want to get off on a big tangent here because we got a lot of comments to get through, but it's kind of similar, and I had a f- similar discussion. Remember when we talked about RRR on the bonus episode mm-hmm. and the way that that took like historical figures and kind of turned them into these bombastic, like, um, and, and especially like the musical piece at the end, I felt like it treated these historical things in a way that was, I, I asked that question, like, could you even do that in an American movie? And I guess I had forgotten about Forrest Gump because I think Forrest <laughs> Gump kind so the of answer's does it. Yes. <laughs> I feel like Forrest Gump kind of does it where it treats these incredibly important, like, again, they were like, in, in RRR, if you haven't seen it, it's a bonus episode on Patreon, but we discussed, like, the way that movie uh, mythologizes these these figures in Indian history and the way they um, were, like, freedom fighters and stuff, but it does this in this over... I, I thought the movie was fantastic. We both enjoyed it a lot, but I, it was a question I had of, like, how does this come across when you know the history? Is mm-hmm. this, like, does this feel disrespectful? Does it, in the way that, like, Forrest Gump, to me, feels at times kind of like weird and disrespectful to just be like see and then he handed the this per like i don't know like we're just inserting this because that's a similar idea of like inserting this artificial this artifice into these like historical yeah like stories and narratives um it's kind of similar in that regard and i i don't know it's interesting because i yeah for me without having the context for rr i i did i didn't know you know how how people would feel about it um, and I thought I think I will say I think RR treats it with more gravitas than this does, while still being as bombastic and over the top as it possibly can. I don't know; it's interesting, mm-hmm. but it, it did kind of remind me of that discussion we had on RRR. Anyway, sorry. Uh, Nathan went on to say the movie might be advocating for Forrest's simplistic way of moving through the world, but that way of life is only available to him because of his privilege as a rich white able-bodied male. The movie doesn't really seem to be aware of this. I think there was a caustic satire of American exceptionalism that this movie could have been, but it would have been a much more uncomfortable contrast between the comfort of Forrest and the suffering of those around him. I don't know what to say about the book that Katie hasn't already laid out. It accomplishes nothing narrative and does it poorly and with maximum offensiveness. I do appreciate her bringing up the sexual assault as that was profoundly disturbing and so completely ignored in the book. I needed someone to yell about it with. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Glad Katie could provide that for you. Uh, and thanks. That was a great comment. I really, uh, really insightful. I agree with a lot of it. Our next comment was from Steve from Arizona, who said, I was a junior in high school when this movie initially came out, and in all honesty, I loved it. So I went to the library and checked out the book, and boy, it was bad. <laughs> With age comes better understanding of the world, and now I'm even more horrified by this book after rereading it for this episode. I'm a tree hugger these days, and I weep for the fallen furs and the assassinated elders <laughs> used to make this book a bestseller. I mean, I could look past the fact we're viewing the book from a certain perspective, but then came the Orange Bowl game, and then he starts smoking pot, and then he saves Chairman Mao Zedong from drowning, and then he's shot into space. And then the war between the cannibals and the pygmies, who also practiced cannibalism. And then the chess tournament where he farts. And then the incident with Raquel Welch. And then he runs for senator on a campaign slogan, I got to go pee. And finally, he becomes a one-man band living a sort of vagrant lifestyle while also owning the biggest shrimp company in the U.S., all while navigating a lot of these moments with Sue the Orangutan. I'm glad this book was only a couple hundred pages. Thankfully, we didn't get an E.L. James length of book. The filmmakers definitely did a service for Winston Groom. Now, the movie isn't perfect, but I will agree the movie is not malicious in its treatment of, of Forrest. 
I forgot how relentlessly mean-spirited the book is towards him and how he just accepts it. Yes, the movie is silly at many times throughout, but the heartfelt moments were always quite exceptional. Bubba's death always hits me the worst, for I too wished I had said more to various relatives who have passed away over the past decade. The movie is just an overall powerhouse of special effects, exceptional location shooting, and great makeup. I bet you didn't even notice Hank's hairline changes throughout the movie as he gets older. Overall, this wasn't even a close contest. Also, I'm sure someone mentioned it already, but Tom Hanks talked the way he talked because he wanted to mimic young, the young boy that was playing his character. Another piece of fun trivia, Hanks actually kept in touch with him over the years. I had read that. I think I read it in my prequel um, research when I was... Yeah. Uh, that that he, he originally didn't want to do as much of a voice as he does, like put on as much of an affectation as he does in the film. Uh, and that at least part of it was that um, because of the the child actor who was playing him. Yeah. When, but but you're you're referring less to the regional dialect. Uh, or my understanding of what you're saying was, which is, and the boy has a fairly distinct regional dialect. Mm-hmm. But it, I think you're, and I could be wrong, but were you not re- referring more to in, in the affectation that Hanks was putting on was like this the the manner in which he speaks as a reflection of like his mental disability yes. was was maybe not as yeah. Um, and I don't. We got this comment from Steve, and there's another comment later that also mentions the same thing. Um, and I I don't remember well enough how the young boy talked at the beginning of the movie to like draw a comparison in my mind. Um, and I and I, I you're right. I'm not necessarily talking about like the southern drawl. Yeah. That he puts because the the boy has a very distinct like Georgian or whatever accent mm-hmm. that has some words. And and I think um and, and yeah sorry continue I didn't mean to cut you off. And I think it is you know kind of tricky to discuss and i'm not an expert and that's on yeah dialect. i think that's the big the, the biggest thing is yeah and there's this whole like mess of intersections yes. between like how we view you know a southern drawl and like the level of intelligence that as a society we tend to ascribe to that however i think there are moments within the affect that Hanks was doing in this movie that to me rang less Southern drawl and more person with a stereotype of a a person with a learning disability. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely. And, 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 but you know, and again, I, I, we're not, it's hard to discuss that without, without, because we're not extremely knowledgeable about, yeah, the the uh, people with learning disabilities and the way that affects speech and blah blah, blah all and, these and other and things and all like, of the many intersections. And yes, and all the inter- that, many that intersections of that. But that was just the, the, I think more of what you were getting at was not the yeah not the, the regional dialect, but again the other yeah. the other part of it, um, which again maybe had been related to I think there is some of that maybe even was drawn from the way the child the kid actor spoke because he also did have kind of a stilted way of speaking beyond the dialect that maybe yeah. Hanks was pulling from some. And again, I think it's complicated i don't think it's as it's not like an overtly like awful like complete caricature at all times throughout the movie you know what i mean at least to me it doesn't feel that way so i i don't think it's i think there's some nuance to it in the sense that i don't think it's like good lord that's like every time he speaks you're like oh my god what are you know what i mean it's not the caricature of like the uh the uh the example from like um Tropic Thunder or whatever, where they, they the movie that been the fake movie that Ben Stiller's in, where he's he's playing a person with like mental disability and he's like doing this 
ridiculous and it, that's like the whole joke or whatever but mm-hmm. uh, so I, I but again i think it is yeah i think it's it goes beyond just um mimicking the kid maybe i don't know i'd have to go back and see well and you know and i i also think though that even if the intent was purely to mimic the way that the this child actor spoke that i think it is close enough to being to sounding like it's offensive that somebody should have been like hey maybe we should dial that back maybe we should revisit it yeah yeah no I, yeah i think it's definitely something that could have been approached maybe with a little more again without who knows yeah it, it's definitely uh, it's definitely an interesting discussion that uh, more educated people should have about that <laughs> than us <laughs> probably <laughs> our next comment on patreon was from matilde who said I noped out of the book after the first couple of pages because the language was already getting on my nerves. I'm so glad I trusted my instinct and didn't push myself. Sounds like Katie made quite the sacrifice for the podcast. We appreciate it. I loved the movie then, and I still love it now. Could it have been smarter, deeper, better handled? Oh, yes. But it's obvious it was made with a lot of heart and good intentions. For what it set out to do, I think it's a very successful movie. It wanted to be a sentimental, well-meaning story, and it's definitely that. It hoped to show the perfect example of the American dream and image, or at least that's how it comes across to a foreigner. It's definitely a fantasy and quite unrealistic and privileged. And I think those two sentences are the thing that where a lot of people have the disconnect is, yes, it is trying this, it's pushing this idea of the American dream and the idealism of like mm-hmm. being a simple, good-hearted person in America and succeeding and and being you know and the sensationalism or not sensationalism but and succeeding uh, immensely because of the way you're and that the, like idealizing the American dream, but you're in a second sentence there. It's definitely a fantasy, quite un- unrealistic and privileged. That's where the movie feels slightly disconnected because it doesn't seem to really address those aspects yes. of like Forrest Gump's story at all. Anyways, yeah. Matilda um, went on to say. But even with these flaws and what you highlighted in the episode, it's still an emotional and enjoyable watch. I love the cinematography, the music and the score, the performances, especially Gary Sinise, and the direction. In all aspects, it's very well made, and it never fails to make me cry. All right. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, Non-American's perspective on this very American movie. <laughs> nice to get some outside uh, some outside yeah. eyeballs on it. Always nice to have a more of an outside perspective <laughs> yeah. on that. Our last comment on Patreon was from Laura Penhaligon, mm-hmm. who said, Although I have never read the book, I'm voting for the movie, and based on Katie's comments, I feel pretty solid in that decision. You know, if I can keep people from reading this book, I I have succeeded in life. Mission ended. You've done it. I've always said this was one of my favorite movies. I didn't even realize there was a book until a few years ago. It's definitely Oscar Beatty, and I've always understood why some people don't like it for that. It was one of those movies that my whole family enjoyed watching, which was special because we don't all have the same taste in movies. Oh, that's definitely a movie for that. Like, y- yeah. y- most people, I say most, a lot of people will enjoy this. It's one of the reasons it's a very highly rated movie is because it's a very cl- crowd pleasing. My yeah. parents love this movie. You know, I, I you know, I, my, most of my friends, I'm sure, like that. You watch it with a very broad cross section of people, mm-hmm. and most people are going to be like, that was nice. For the most part, you know what yeah. I mean? Again, without 
I think, yeah, there's other layers to it, but just broadly speaking, I think that is the case. Not unlike a lot of nostalgic pieces of media, though, I noticed a few more contentious things as I grew older, many of which you mentioned in the episode. I don't feel like I have adequate historical context to speak on them with the gravitas they deserve, but I'll do my best to summarize one thing I know a little bit about and one thing that I love about the movie. It's interesting watching this movie as a special educator working with students with various disabilities. Hey, we got somebody chiming in on this topic. (laughs) Fantastic. The history of special education is ongoing and very dense, and we've certainly come a long way since the 1950s when Forrest was school-aged. I think the movie and Sally Field did a good job of portraying a dedicated and loving single mother to a child with a disability that she never anticipated or seemingly knows anything about. She's told her child is different and essentially does not deserve the same things as normal children. She does everything in her power to make sure Forrest is not affected by these comments and fights so hard for him, including sleeping with the principal of the public school to avoid him going to a special school. As you mentioned, these schools were not ideal to say the least. It wasn't until 1975 when the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, the EA. EHA was passed that all children with disabilities across the country were guaranteed a free appropriate public education. So I wouldn't be surprised if parents of children with disabilities went through ludicrous loopholes to keep them in public school like Forrest's mom did. I think one thing about this movie that really sticks with me is the scene toward the end where Forrest is reading his son's note to Jenny. That's always made me bawl. I really love the detail that Forrest respects his son's wishes of him not reading it. Like, imagine being in that situation. I think a lot of us would be lying if we said we wouldn't at least be curious about what is said. And I'm sure Forrest was too, but he just left it on Jenny's grave for her to read it. The movie's treatment of Jenny can definitely be read as misogynistic for a lot of reasons, but I think it at least tried to end her storyline in a respectful manner. It is cheesy, but I love how a flock of birds flies away as Forrest is walking away from her grave. About two times in the movie, Jenny mentions wishing she was a bird so she could fly far, far away, and this scene is the third and concluding through line of that. I just love the implication that she's finally at peace in that way. Despite its historical inaccuracies and pretentious moments, I agree with your assessment that the movie seems to be coming from a good place. At least I'd like to think so. Knowing the writer went on to, to write Killers of the Flower Moon, it's possible that Forrest Gump would have been better informed if made today. At worst, it takes a neutral stance and naively asks, why can't we all just get along? Which is much, much better and seemingly less harmful than its book counterpart. I really enjoyed listening to this episode. Looking forward to many more to come. Thanks again for all that you do. Awesome. Really appreciate that comment. Uh, was it Laura, right? Yeah. Laura, uh, that's fantastic. Um, there's one thing I wanted to just chime in on. I agreed. I, I I noticed too. I didn't mention it, but I, I noticed the, the the birds flying away and thought mm-hmm. that's a nice little kind of visual bookend for that or Jenny storyline. Um, and I I do I do kind of fluctuate on. I I agree. You know, I I voiced all of my objections to kind of the way Jenny was handled over the course of the film and and what the movie kind of feels like it's saying in regards to her storyline. But all that being said, and I think the, I think the reason it's because it's in juxtaposition to what happens with Forrest and everything. That all that being said, it's not inherently misogynistic to portray a story like what happened to Jenny because people go through that, and that's a story yeah. that people have. You know what I mean? So it's not yeah. like 
automatically or inherently kind of like problematic to have a, a, a woman who you know has a, 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 an abusive childhood and then deals with drugs like that's 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 a real story that affects real people and is an important thing to tell and thing and handle and all that sort of stuff um and i think the movie is doing its best i think at, at its best the movie thinks it's doing that yeah. i just think at times it falls into the trap and again juxtaposed to kind of forest in his trajectory it feels punitive yes uh, by the narrative uh, against jenny as opposed to like uh sympathetic all the time i guess yeah. kind of is yeah how I, 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 I don't or judgment yeah i don't think the movie is not like sympathetic or empathetic towards jenny yeah. but I, I agree with you that it does at times feel judgmental, judgmental and a her. little yes and, and 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 in a way that feels um kind of gross at times yes but again it, i don't think that's the intention i just think that that it, it's kind of like a one of those like blind spot things where it is what it feels like to me where yeah it just kind of ends up feeling coming across more i think more judgmental than maybe the screenwriter intended for that uh to be all right over on facebook we had six votes for the movie and zero for the book um greg said I'll vote for the movie, though in a lesser of two evils way, as honestly I wasn't wild about either. I remember liking the movie the first time, but I hadn't seen it in about 20 years, and it didn't hold up to my memory of it when I rewatched. I respect the filmmaking craft involved, that Zemeckis was required to shoot and stitch together scenes from a historical drama, a sports movie, a war film, a nautical survival adventure story, and other genres, and did so well is pretty impressive. I would agree with that. I, it, to the point, I actually forgot. I was like, I was like a nautical survival, and then I remembered the the shrimping, yeah, and the storm. <laughs> I was like, yeah. but no, I agree that is not easy, and I think it, it is a it was deftly directed in order to make that all come together in a way that doesn't feel like a complete mess. Yeah, and it doesn't feel like a complete mess, regardless of your right. other feelings on the film. It doesn't well, and feel like especially a mess. like if we contrast that to the book, which is similarly yes. kind of vignettes. Yeah, but the book feels like a mess yeah. and just jumping from thing to thing yeah um greg went on to say but i found the story ludicrously contrived the emotional beats too saccharine the character of jenny glaringly underdeveloped and ill-treated by the screenplay and the performance of hanks who is an actor i generally love way too one note i get that the story is supposed to be a fable with Forrest as a kind of holy fool randomly blundering his way into major moments in late 20th century history, but it felt silly and sentimental and didn't work for me. I recall reading an essay with a negative take on the movie that called it, quote, an emotional bus trip that takes you on a ride but doesn't go anywhere, or something to that effect, and that description really resonated with me on a rewatch. I'd never read the book before now, but found it to have all those exact same problems and more besides. The second half plot developments were even more far-fetched than those in the part of it the movie followed more closely, though I must admit seeing Hanks as Forrest in space, winning a world-class chess tournament by farting, or getting arrested for running through Hollywood naked with Raquel Welch and an orangutan would have been fun. I disagree. <laughs> and Groom made everything worse by writing literally the whole thing in affected cornpone dialect and peppering the text with racial epithets. Oh, I can never say that word. <laughs> Epi epithets? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I get that that's how a character from that time and place would have spoken. They felt gratuitous. No thanks. So, movie. 
While I find it pretty mediocre, it's possible to do a lot worse than pretty mediocre, and the book does in this case. All right, uh, moving on then. Uh, we also had a comment from Ian who said, Shrimping with oh, a, I rem- oh, sorry. I remembered what I was going to say, and it wasn't. And, and the reason I, I was looking through the comment and nothing was because it wasn't really. I I was just going to mention, and this comment triggered this in my brain. How uh, how much I love how many people seem to read the book like for the first time along with yeah. the podcast and what you know what I mean? Yeah, like, that's it, fun. It seems like a lot of people were like, oh, I picked it up and read the book. Where very often, I mean, we do have people that do that, but it doesn't seem like a lot of people did it this yeah. time. So, well, that was it was, it was fun. I'm sorry that it was such a an awful book. Yeah. For for that, who could have known? Yeah. <laughs> Our other comment on Facebook was from Ian, who said, "Shrimping with orangutans and going into space with it, crashing down and getting captured by Papua New Guinea cannibals. Words fail me. Imagine being there in the pitch meeting when they're discussing what to use and what not to use from the book." I guarantee there was at least one schmuck that wanted to keep that nonsense. Seems possible. I can also imagine the screenwriter, uh, I think it was Eric Roth, or not Eric Roth, I can't remember his name now, um, the screenwriter going through and he ends up with a version of the book that looks like Jefferson's Bible, where he's just like <laughs> cut out like, you know, huge swaths of it. And it's just like, what were they thinking? Yeah. Did we talk about... Did Winston Groom write a script treatment for yes, this? Yes, I believe I said in the prequel that he worked on several early versions of the script, and then uh, when it switched studios... Yeah, it got um, a new treatment. And it got bought by a different studio, or swapped. They swapped scripts, I believe is what I remember saying, uh, with a different studio, and and because uh, Warner Brothers had it and Paramount picked it up, or vice yeah. versa. And yeah, when they when that happened, they brought on the new screenwriter and he did his own version. I don't know how much of it, uh, you know, I don't know if he was, you know, just made punch ups or tweaks to Winston Groom's script or if he just completely, I didn't see that. In I mean, based on the book, I would have to assume that they completely rewrote it. Yeah, I unless was... Winston Groom was a good editor on himself on a second pass for a movie and took most of the stuff out that he, <laughs> he in later years realized was awful. I don't know, man. You know, I mean, it wasn't seems unlikely. It, it wasn't that much True. later. True. It was only a few years later. Just, that's, that's fair. I was just gonna say I would kind of love to see that Winston Groom script. Yeah, because yeah. I bet it sucks. <laughs> Um, over on Twitter, we had four votes for the movie and one for the book. Uh, not a person who decided to defend the book, but we <laughs> did have one comment from Len Flakasinski, who said, The Black Panther scene is made worse by the way they use uniforms. Forrest is in full uniform while the guy he beats up is in a hippie version of a military uniform. Also, the only one in the Black Panther scene who's dressed in green, like Forrest. There's zero reason why Forrest needs to be dressed in full uniform in this scene, other than to make the movie's point Mm. that good men go to fight for their country like Forrest, and bad men stay home and fight for equality. Yeah. Uh, While Brian was talking about Forrest's optimism, I was thinking of Wayman's speech in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, and how that portrayed the kind of hopefulness Forrest has without insulting a specific group of people. Yeah, I would agree with that. I definitely think that some of the the kind of, which is I think a lot of, the, some of the issues I've seen people have with everything everywhere all at once is that it, it is similarly in certain ways kind of um, maybe saccharine. saccharine and overly optimistic and sweet in ways. Sentimental. That, sentimental in ways that some people just don't jive with or whatever. 
Um, among there's other criticisms of the movie that I know people have. I don't, but yeah. but point being that I think that is definitely some criticisms they have. But yeah, I think that it handles that topic in a way more human and um like realistic for lack of a better word way than this movie does yeah which again but i I, yeah with all without insulting a specific group of people yeah i I would agree on instagram we had seven votes for the movie and two for the book one of which doesn't count because it was from tim wahoo okay so that's just only uh, for those of us you who are new (laughs) uh only ever votes for whatever the opposite of what i picked was yep uh, first comment was from John Polly thirty seven. I wonder who that is. I have no idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> who said for just for the <laughs> just to let people so they don't feel like he was a groomsman in my wedding. He's one of my yeah. best friends. And he said, Forrest Gump is Ready Player One for Boomers might be the most accurate take I've ever heard on this podcast. <laughs> it was an impressive amount of restraint to wait until 34 minutes in to reveal how much you disliked the book. I don't think I could have held back so long. Appreciate it, Polly. Thank you. I did. I did mean <laughs> did. to put we actually did a, me, yeah. a warning up front. You were going to say that at the beginning and then we forgot. We kind of got into it right yeah. away. Yeah. Uh, and to be fair, a, a good chunk of those 34 minutes was probably just you reading the Wikipedia story. That is true. It was nine minutes. Because <laughs> uh, I remember I, when I came in and recorded the time code to tell people to skip, it was like eight, nine minutes into the, or yeah. something like that. So yeah, it was like the first eight minutes, eight and a half minutes was literally just the, the Wikipedia summary of the film. So, um, And I realized, I just realized I said my wedding. I meant our wedding. That's, you're the person <laughs> I married in this context. I, I guess sometimes well, I'm thinking like, some of the times I'm sitting fair. across from kyle and sometimes i'm sitting across from you so it's sometimes the words come out backwards <laughs> as people have noticed when I, I occasionally plug the wrong thing on patreon at the end of episodes but uh our other next comment on instagram was from m mundy 87 who said finally one i've actually read and watched Ooh. i've watched this movie many times as it was one of my dad's favorites and i'll have to agree with katie the book oof and that's all that really needs to be said about that. In regards to Tom Hanks' dialect he uses, it wasn't a choice he made as a representation of a, quote, slow or autistic person. He got the dialect and cadence from the actor that played young Forrest, who actually spoke that way as a child. Check out a couple interviews where he talks about it and some behind-the-scenes stuff if you want a reference. Love the podcast and keep up the good work. Appreciate the comment. I think we discussed that. Yeah, we already we already kind of got to that uh, the earlier comment that discussed the same thing. But uh, yeah, thanks yeah. for thanks for chiming in. Oh, I'm glad we were able to to finally get one that you had both yes. read and watched. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, next comment was from M. Layden Coolidge, who said, "Neither Forrest Gump is one of those movies that is universally loved by everyone. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not one of them." I really don't like Gump as a character apart from learning disabilities. He never gets injured, especially in Vietnam, but somehow manages to accomplish everything because he is different. I get the positive message, but there is a percentage of how much I can turn off my brain before I start to get a little furious at how ludicrous the situation becomes. Interesting. I will say that I don't, that's for me not an issue at all. Um, mm-hmm. the, the many issues I have with the movie that we've discussed, um, I'm, I've never really been, unless it's trying, unless the movie is trying to be a specific thing and then goes off the rails, but the, the but like the, the, the sort of ridiculous nature of Gump's like luck or 
whatever you want to yeah. call it is not something that is an issue for me. I know there are people that 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 you know um, definitely can kind of just that grates on them this this sort of outlandish nature of the story. But I I, I I'm meeting the the movie on its level that this is it. The movie knows it's fantastical and ridiculous and yeah. like that that well, the, the, like we said in the episode, it does flirt with yes. like magical realism. Yeah. Um, and as somebody else said earlier, it is kind of a fable. Yeah. And, and, and like, and so I, um, the, the, like turning off my brain or whatever, I get what you're saying, but to me there, I, I don't have that issue with a movie like this. I I think if there's other movies where certain things, a a good example, and I haven't watched it in years, maybe my thoughts will have changed, but a good example would be something like, um, now I can't remember the name and I'm glad this is good. I'm healing. Nature is healing. Um, (laughs) Oh God, what's, uh, Prometheus. For example, is obviously it's a crazy alien movie, but I hated that movie, mm-hmm. and it was because of I thought it was just the most ridiculous. Like every situation was ludicrous. Nobody reacted the way people would. Like just non, it just everything in it. Like scene after scene after scene, I would just thought was completely just stupid and ridiculous. And and now again, without revisiting it, maybe that's the point. I don't think it was, but um, <laughs> something like that that is purporting to be like kind of like a sci-fi like somewhat grounded like horror mm-hmm. thriller whatever you want to call it that's where that that kind of contrast can cause issues for me but with something like this yeah i don't think this movie this, is that, that doesn't to be grounded no it and so the the, the ludicrous nature of like the hijinks he gets up to yeah. didn't really bother me um yeah. over the course of the film and that doesn't usually bother me although i am curious how i would have felt about it had I not read the book. Oh, that's interesting. Because coming from the book, the movie seemed so reasonable. <laughs> and that was the other thing I was actually going to get into is I, I think that I think it could go off the rails, but not in like a, I, and maybe they're saying this, I don't know. Maybe what Mladen is saying here is is, is slightly different than what I'm interpreting. Because um, I, I could understand watching this movie, if it had every single scene from the book where they go to, he goes to space and there's like an orangutan mm-hmm. and it could get ludicrous in the sense of like, I can't take this movie seriously because it just doesn't feel like it just feels like a farce, like a complete yeah. comical farce. And maybe that's what they're getting at. And their level for that is just a lot lower yeah, uh, than mine is, I guess. But to me, I thought the movie did an OK job of because it edited out a lot of the more like really ridiculous stuff from the movie that the sort of um, absurdities of the film and the, the fact that Tom or that um, Forrest Gump ends up in all of these you know, famous historical moments and, and, and like all the kind of stuff that happens and, um, you know, succeeds at everything he does. That is kind of the point of the movie. Like that's like the premise upon which the movie is built. It doesn't feel like a mistake by the movie. It feels Mm -hmm. like what the movie is kind of built upon. So it doesn't necessarily bother me in the same way, but I I guess I can kind of get what you're getting at. Cause like I said, I think if the movie was, what we got in the book, if we had him and naked Raquel Welsh or whatever running through within a rank, like I would have been like, okay, what are we even doing? But that's a slightly <laughs> different thing. It feels like to me than what it seems to me. I'm interpreting you yeah. as criticizing here, but I could be wrong about that. So, Our other comment on Instagram, our last one was from Izoro. Um, who said, quick FYI on what Forrest said at the National Mall when the PA system cords got unplugged. 
um, quote, sometimes when people go to Vietnam, they go home to their mamas without any legs. Sometimes they don't go home at all. Oh, so I guess it's known because it's in the script or whatever, probably. Yeah, probably. It's probably written in the script, so. There you go. Now we know uh, what he said. Um, it was vaguely anti war. Yeah, yeah. Like that could be uh, the people yeah. there definitely would have interpreted that as anti war. Yeah. And, which makes sense because obviously the guy, uh, what's his name? The Armin or whatever, the the organizer who's standing up there with him heard him and he goes, right. like, that and was really gets, powerful. Yeah. Like he said, yeah, good yeah, job yeah. or whatever. So he clearly said something that could be interpreted as, yeah, anti war. Um, over on threads, we did not have any comments, but we did have two votes for the movie, none for the book. Got a couple of votes over on threads, yeah. baby. Uh, and on Goodreads, we haven't had a Goodreads comment in yeah. a long time, but we had one vote for the movie, nothing for the book, and we had a comment from Miko, who said, I thought about starting this comment jokingly praising the book just to annoy Katie, but I can't. <laughs> <laughs> While I didn't dislike the book as much as Katie, I still remember how baffled I was reading Forrest Gump going into space with an orangutan. And that first read has to be close to 15 years ago now. While the movie could be said to be a mixed bag, it has picked the best pieces from the book and made generally good changes. And how could one not like Tom Hanks? The movie wins easily. There you go. Thank you for chiming back in, Miko. We missed you. Hope you'll be commenting again in the near future. What were our final numbers here? Uh, the movie won by a landslide. Yes. Probably to no one's surprise, with 27 votes to the book's three, one of which doesn't count. One of which doesn't count. Wow. Absolutely clobbered. Clobbered. All right. That's going to do it for our listener feedback. Now... We have a learning thing segment, and what we're learning about is Disney's Dark Age. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. It's gotta, it sounds, you know, it's got to be scary. It's, it's, it's a little bit melodramatic, maybe. <laughs> um, so, Disney animation. Um, and when I say Disney animation, I'm talking about the big, major theatrical animated releases. Right. Um, by, You're from, ignoring like all the Disney home releases. Animations. And blah, yes, blah, blah, I'm yeah. ignoring the home releases, the straight to VHSs, the t for television animation. Right. Our, our major theatrical releases. So Disney animation is typically divided into eight distinct generations, um, each of which kind of have their own traits. You can like look at them and see like stylistically where they fall. Yeah. Um, so we have the Golden Age, the wartime era. The Silver Age, the Bronze Age, the Dark Age, the Renaissance, the Experimental Era, and the Revival. Okay. So the Dark Age is mainly yes. what we're going to focus on here. About. I just wanted to give a little context. Right. Um, so the Dark Age is typically considered to run from 1981 to 1988. Um, and there are some people who don't consider this to be its own distinct era, and they instead lump it in with the Bronze Age. However, it is kind of hard to deny that Disney Animation Studios was on the struggle bus during the 80s in a way that wasn't quite as bad as it was in the mm -hmm. 70s. No. Um, so a little bit of background about like the Bronze Era first. So the Bronze Era was a transition period that followed the death of Walt Disney. 
and there were two additional bumps in the road that went along with that. One was that many of the original studio animators, right, the nine old men, were either retiring or dead. And the other road bump was that the company overall was busy diversifying. They were doing live action films. They were getting into television. They were putting a lot of money and energy towards the theme parks. Yeah. Meaning that there was less focus, less money to put towards animation. Mm Mm-hmm. So because of that, the films in this era were made with lower budgets. They used more recycled animation than previous eras, and they used Xeroxography. Xerography. Xerography. I I mentioned Um, that in the 101 Dalmatians episode. but Uh, And that gave the animation like an overall kind of darker and Mm -hmm. scratchier look. And like you said, we did talk about that in the 101 Dalmatians um, episode. Walt hated it. Yes. We talked about that in the prequel. Um, And I think we talked a little bit about the recycled animation as well. We talked about that numerous times over the course of time. Um, However, one advantage that the animation department had in the 1970s was that they were able to use ideas that Walt himself had either previously greenlit or had expressed some interest in developing before he died. The major releases of that era were The Aristocats, Robin Hood, which we've covered, uh, The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, and The Rescuers, which we've Mm -hmm. also covered. Um, So these are movies that the, like they're not held aloft the way that the classics from like the golden and silver eras are. Yeah. But they're still, you know, remembered pretty fondly. Right. But when those ideas ran out, the animation team started to really struggle to find their footing while flying solo, so to speak. And due to infighting over creative differences, other disagreements, um, release dates were often delayed during this era and staff turnover was high. This is during the 1980s. Uh-huh. Um, so the Bronze Era and the Dark Age both distanced themselves from the typical Disney like fairy tale musical formula. Yeah. And the Dark Age actually took that even further, focusing on darker and more realistic and less whimsical stories. Films of the Dark Age were The Fox and the Hound, The Black Cauldron, Great Mouse Detective, and Oliver and Company. We're covering our second of that. Yes, yeah. second of that one. We have covered The Black Cauldron. Yep. Uh, none of the films made during the Dark Age were like standout hits, although many of the films of both the Dark Age and the Bronze Era found better success with the advent of home video. Yeah. Um, the Black Cauldron in particular bombed so badly that it almost killed Disney animation mm-hmm. entirely. Um, which we also discussed in our Black Cauldron prequel. Um, However, these films were not without artistic merit. The Great Mouse Detective, for example, is a good uh, example of how computers were assisting with the animation Mm -hmm. process for the first time. And Oliver and Company uh, didn't exactly get like showered with praise, but its return to the musical format did help pave the way for the Disney Renaissance. Mm Mm-hmm which arguably saved Disney animation. Yeah. And I, this is one, and we'll get into it, or I'm sure I'll mention it throughout, especially in the main episode once we rewatch it, but in particular, The Great Mouse Detective is one that I remember liking as a kid. I remember nothing about this movie, but I remember watching it a lot as a kid and liking it, like when I was, you know, very young. Um, So I am interested to rewatch it for that purpose. But other than that, I I did not like Fox and the Hound as a kid because it was too sad. 
Oh uh, yeah, the, and, and, the Fox and the Hound. I you would have to twist my arm to get me to watch. I just the remember thinking it's too sad and it's just too miserable. <laughs> like yeah. for my as my childhood memory of it, I don't know how much that actually holds up in reality. But um, and then obviously we talked about the Black Cauldron in the episode, and I don't remember anything about Oliver and Company, but it was not one I remember caring about as a kid at all. Oliver and Company, I don't. Oliver and Company scared me a little bit, but I did like it okay. as a kid. Yeah. Um, but I felt kind of similarly about the Great Mouse Detective. There were parts of it that like scared me a little. Yeah. As a kid, but I did always like enjoy it. Yeah, I remember watching it because I also liked like Sherlock Holmes and stuff as a kid. Mm-hmm. Or when I, you know, I say a kid, I was probably like eight or nine or ten or whatever. But, um, yeah. All right. Now we're gonna learn a little bit about the movie that the Great Mouse Detective is based. Or sorry, the book <laughs> that the Great Mouse Detective is based on, Basil of Baker Street. From the creators who brought you The Adventure of Aladdin and the excitement of The Little Mermaid comes a tale of mystery, suspense, and a great big adventure in The Great Mouse Detective. When a beloved toy maker disappears, delightfully wicked, there's only one mouse for the job. Basil of Baker Street, my good fella. Together with his trusty sidekick, <laughs> he's ready to crack the case. Your father is as good as fun. Miss Flamhammer. Flavisham. Whatever. But only if he can stop a slimy, contemptible sewer rat. Basil of Baker Street is a series of children's novels written by American children's writer Eve Titus. Great name. I, certainly Eve it Titus is. Eve Titus sounds yes. like a Eve sci-fi Titus. name. And illustrated by... Captain Eve <laughs> Titus. <laughs> uh, illustrated by Paul Galdone. Not as good of a name. Uh, there are eight books in the series. The five original titles were published from 1958 to 1982. Um, and then the series was revived three decades later um, in 2018. And they were being written by Kathy Hapka and illustrated huh. by David Mottram. Interesting. I didn't know it was revived. Yeah. Uh, so the stories focus on the titular Basil of Baker Street and his personal biographer, Dr. David Q. Dawson. Uh, who are anthropomorphic mice based on Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Yep. Uh, I am only reading the first entry in this series, which is also titled Basil of Baker Street. So it is possible that the movie will pull some things from the other four original books, but just from reading the synopses, it sounds to me like the movie is more of an original story starring Mm, the existing characters. But... I think that the first novel will be the closest. Interesting. I don't know how well you remember when we talked about the rescuers. No, like not is, at all. I forgot uh, another, we did another the rescuers. one uh, starring anthropomorphic mice. Yes, yeah. Um, I think I was, I got these confused sometime as a kid. And there's another one, right? There's an uh, there's a there's a, a well, there's rescuers, rescuers down under. Sequel, yeah. yeah, which I yeah I would also get those two confused with each other, but yeah. But because uh, that one was like a little bit closer to the book, but it was more of like a new story starring right. these, these characters, characters yeah. and it sounds like this one might be similar to that. Yeah. All right. Well, that's what we're going to be talking about, or that's the book that Katie's going to be reading, and, and you are too if you're reading along. But now we're going to learn a little more about the film The Great Mouse Detective. Tricky and wicked, of course. The clues are in. Case. The pressure is on. I'm right behind you, Marshal. And the adventure is about to begin. To Buckingham Palace. <laughs> Say cheese. Smile, everyone. For the mouse who always gets his man. I thought I'd never find you. 
elementary, my dear Dawson. The film Joel Siegel calls magic, and Siskel and Ebert give two thumbs up Disney's animated classic, The Great Mouse Detective. Miss Flanchester. Flanchester. Whatever. The Great Mouse Detective is a 1986 film directed by Ron Clements, who did The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Hercules, Treasure Planet, and Moana. Bernie Mattinson, who wrote, who was primarily a writer, wrote Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Lion King. Uh, David Mickner, uh, who was a writer and animator on assorted projects at Disney, including Robin Hood, The Rescuers, Fox and the Hound, and Oliver and Company. And John Musker, who uh, was director on, uh, I think Musker and Clements are partners. Like they yeah. have most of the same, and those names together. When I just said yeah, Musker those, and those Clements, names that together rung uh, a bell. Yes. <laughs> so, um, also director on Moana, Treasure Planet, Hercules, Aladdin, Little Mermaid, like all the same movies that Clements was. I think those two are uh, like a, a directing duo. Yeah. Um, the film uh, was written by Peter <laughs> Young, Vance Gary, Steve Hewlett, Ron Clements, John Musker, Bruce Morris, Matthew O'Callaghan, Bernie Mattinson, David McNair, and Mel Shaw. Uh, so quite a few writers mm. on this one. I did, I did mention that there was a lot of turnover yes. and infighting during but this era. To be fair, Disney, I, from my memory, most of them have more writers than many traditional films because they do like... I think sometimes the animators, Disney's movie make, especially the animation process, mm-hmm. is just way different than like how most, and maybe it's similar to other animation studios. I don't know, but like traditional movie, yeah. Well, I imagine studios, that animation would be a far more collaborative process, and that's yes, and I think that is the case. And so I think there are generally more writers on animation than there is on because I think it could be even weird things where you get writing credits for. Because you're choosing like what the characters are doing. I don't know. It's interesting. I, yeah, I'd be very but, interested to see the, how writing credits on animation actually works. Disney to do also has a habit of writing things over the span of like decades. Yes. Like, so somebody comes in and works and then on something, shelving and then, things, yes. and then pulling them back out. Exactly. Yeah. The film stars. So point being, I don't know if it's indicative of quality in the same way that if you see a modern like comic book movie come out and it has eight writers or whatever, <laughs> you're probably like, oh, boy, <laughs> like that. It, I think there's a slight difference there, I guess, is my point. Uh, the film stars Barry Ingham, Vincent Price, Val Benton, Suzanne Palachik, uh, Palachik uh, Candy Candido, Alan Young, Diane, Diana Chesney, Eve Brenner, Basil Rathbone, Lori Main, Wayne Alwine, and Melissa Manchester. The film has a 76% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 73% on Metacritic, and a 7.1 out of 10 on IMDb. And it made $38.7 million against a budget of $14 million. Uh, we'll talk about later. And I don't know what all that counts. That was just on Wikipedia, what it says for box office and budget. But this mm-hmm. movie was considered a success. I think I have a note about it later. Like financially yeah. um, a success, cause especially because uh, the budget was significantly lower than... We'll get to it. So, uh, an animated version of Sherlock Holmes with animals had apparently been kicking around at Disney since The Rescuers was in production, but they shelved it for a while because they felt it was too similar to The Rescuers. But then later, uh, when the studio was displeased with how the whole Black Cauldron thing was going, uh, (laughs) they decided they would greenlight an adaptation of Basil of Baker Street at that time. Then in 1984, Ron Miller, uh, who was ousted as president uh, of Disney, and Michael Eisner, this is when his era started, Mm. came on board and brought along 
the other guy, Jeffrey <laughs> Katzenberger, or Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, as the head of the film division. So Eisner and Katzenberg were very not happy with the direction of uh, the film was called Basil of Baker Street at, at that time, and ordered a bunch of rewrites. They also slashed the budget in half and moved the release date up a year uh, ahead of its intended debut, uh, which I thought was interesting. It was originally supposed to come out Christmas 1987, and then it came out, I think, summer of 1986. Sounds like they wanted it to fail I, based on all I, of that. I don't know. It's wild. So then uh, I thought this is maybe one of my favorite fun facts I've ever found. Uh, after the 1985 young Sherlock Holmes film bombed, okay. Michael Eisner decided that they needed to rename Basil of Baker Street. I say Michael Eisner here. I saw another thing on a different part article or something that said it was some other guy, hmm. but it, either Eisner or some other, it was a, some other head of some department. I don't know. Somebody, somebody there at Disney and ultimately it probably would have landed with Eisner. So he signed off on the name change, I guess decided to rename Basil of Baker street to the great mouse detective because he thought Basil sounded too British. And also I guess they were worried it was too similar to Sherlock Holmes and that had bombed. So they mm-hmm. wanted to try to distance it in some way or whatever. Apparently this annoyed some of the filmmakers who were working on the film animators and whatnot mm-hmm. quite a bit. And Ed Gombert, who was one of the animators on the film, wrote a satirical inter-office memo that was supposedly from the person who made this decision. And that's where I think this is where it says it was from somebody else. But um, basically uh, wrote a fake memo that he sent in inter-office memo uh, <laughs> um, where he jokingly had this this executive that he was writing this letter from in the voice of change the names of a bunch of previous Disney films to make them more generic a la the way that the mm-hmm. great mouse detective was changed from Basil Baker Street. These titles included Seven Little Men Help a Girl, The Wonderful, uh, wonderful Elephant Who Could Really Fly, The Little Deer Who Grew Up, <laughs> The Girl with the See-Through Shoes, Two Dogs Fall in Love, puppies taken away and a boy a bear and a big black cat and i just love that i love that for that guy (laughs) you know i kind of like a boy a bear and a big black cat. that one's good i I was also fond of puppies taken away it's kind of close to the uh what's the the saddest story is that hemingway or whatever oh baby shoes shoes never worn worn puppies taken like colon taken away (laughs) it's like it's like what's the shortest movie title that it's like you know is really sad puppies taken away (laughs) was that hemingway is that is it am i making that up no i think i think that's hemingway don't want to propagate a myth here it looks like there's no confirmation that that story is actually attributed to arthur c clark or sorry to ernest hemingway uh it's a complicated history from what i'm reading on wikipedia but uh, the reason it's attributed to hemingway is that in a 1991 letter uh to humorous john robert colombo arthur c clark recounts the story that hemingway supposed was supposedly won a ten dollar bet uh from his fellow writers where he wrote a, this sto- short story for sale, Baby Shoes Never Worn. But it sounds like there's no actual evidence that he actually did that. So, anyways. That anyways. reminds me of how, um, like, in the era, like, after, like, Brave and Tangled and Frozen came out, people were spoofing the, like, single adjective oh, yeah. title online. Yeah, yeah. 
So, uh, Basil, uh, the, the character model of Basil, was initially modeled off of Bing Crosby, uh, but then ac- actor Leslie Howard eventually thereafter became sort of the model they based him on. And Radigan's character, who's the villain of the film, uh, his design was changed pretty drastically after they cast Basil Rathbone uh, because they wanted to make the character fit his voice better. And they thought their initial version was really thin and like scrawny and ratty. Mm-hmm. They didn't feel like fit his voice is what I was reading. So they kind of redesigned him based on Basil Rathbone's performance. Oh, this was super interesting. The film's finale was originally going to take place on the hands of Big Ben. Uh, but Mike Peraza, who was an artist on the film, had this idea of having the characters break through the face of Big Ben mm. into the gears behind. Um, and you mentioned the CGI. This whole sequence was the whole gears thing at the end yeah. is a bunch of yeah. CGI, which is, yeah. Um, but apparently this idea uh, of having them break through and like the, f- the the climax take place in all these gears in the clock was inspired by a scene from the Japanese film The Castle of Cagliostro which was the debut film of animator Hayao Miyazaki. Mm, interesting. So that's, uh, yeah, like pulled, you know, the best artist, good artist, whatever the best artist steal, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to real quick go back, because yep. I think you had the wrong actor in. Because oh, it I? was Vincent Price who played, who voiced Radigan. Oh, okay. Not Basil Rathbone. I might have swapped that around. Okay. My apologies. <laughs> Uh, so uh, you mentioned earlier uh, how this was a transitory period for from old Disney animated Disney animation to kind of you know modern Disney animation Uh, and apparently this was the final film that Eric Larson consulted on he didn't work on it but he was a consultant and Larson was the final of the nine old men um, of Disney's famous nine old men that was still like working slash alive. I didn't Mm. look to see if they had died at this point, but he was the last one who was still involved in the movies in any (laughs) way. And this was the final movie that any of them was involved with. Again, it just says consulted on, you know, they probably brought him in. He's like, yeah, it looks good or whatever. But, (laughs) uh, I have one IMDb trivia fact because there wasn't that much that I thought was interesting. Um, but I, this one came up several different ways in the IMDb trivia, so I had to mention it at somehow. Like most of the IMDb trivia was about this scene. <laughs> the let me be good to you scene, uh, which I believe takes place in like a cabaret or whatever, uh-huh. uh, was almost cut from the film for the fear of it being too risque. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, apparently, it was kept in particularly because the character singing the song is a mouse and not a human, which made it less objectionable. <laughs> I just want everyone who listens to this episode be prepared to hear me talk about this scene at length. Is this one of those oops, I made a bunch of furries scenes? Yes. <laughs> yes. But that's I, not why I'm going to talk okay. about it at length. This, Well, it, it kind of is. <laughs> kind of. Because this scene has always utterly fascinated me. And learning this little tidbit of information makes it even more fascinating to me. I'm going to discuss this at uh, length. There was, I just want everyone to know. I can't stress enough how like half the tr- IMDb trivia facts were about this scene. And there was stuff about how like originally it was going to be Madonna like that did it. And then like. But, like did the voice. Yeah. The voice and like yeah. and it was going to be based on Madonna. And then it was somebody else like Liza Minnelli or something. And then eventually they went to a different. I can't remember. Um but I think they. I also read that they had to because of the whole issues with the ratings and stuff. They ended up editing parts of it down or something. Mm-hmm. I can't. There was a whole bunch of, and I didn't include all of it because, whatever. But um, 
I, I, maybe I'll find some of for the main episode if it's if I think it's relevant because there was a lot of random <laughs> like fun <laughs> facts about this particular scene. Uh, so I'm looking forward to discussing that once we watch it because uh, I have no memory of this. I, I, again, I, I watched I, I this mean, movie a lot, but I, I I think you hit the nail on the head. This is an oops. I made a bunch of furries scene. Yeah. Uh, oops, I don't know. Furries. I don't know if it was an accident. No, I don't uh, think it was an accident. <laughs> no, clearly. Like, well. I, like I think Robin Hood might have been an accident. I don't. Yes. I don't think this no, was an accident. So I, I would agree that this this yeah. From what I've read, I, I think the fact that the Robin Hood made a bunch of furries was accidental in the sense that I don't think they were trying to portray the the animals in robin hood as like sexually appealing yes. whereas this scene With it's this, very intentionally, it's very intentionally sexually appealing yes. uh i don't know if they were going for let's make people furry so much as they were like they were just like weird old guys at disney who want to see a sexy mouse in a film i don't know who knows <laughs> again i don't even remember the scene so i don't even know how how risque it even is but i need you to brace yourself <laughs> i all right i'm ready and then finally, getting to some reviews for the film, London's Time Out wrote, quote, as usual with film noir, it is the villain who steals the heart and one is rooting for in the breathtaking showdown high up in the cogs and ratchets of Big Ben, end quote. So uh, London's uh, Time Out was a big fan of Radigan. I mean, who isn't? a big fan of Radigan. I, I agree he steals the show. I don't know if I was rooting for him <laughs> in the end, but he does steal the show. Yeah. Uh, Nina Darton, writing for the New York Times, said, quote, The heroes are appealing. The villains have the special Disney flair, humorous black guards who really enjoy being evil, and the script is witty and not overly sentimental, end quote. And then Joanna Steinmetz from the Chicago Tribune uh, said, quote, or gave it three and a half out of four stars, writing, quote, This movie is cute, 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 but it's a higher grade of cute than The Rescuers and The Fox and the Hound. The key to good Disney animation is character and facial expression, and detective abounds in both. And then finally, uh, Siskel and Ebert both gave the film very good reviews, but uh, writing for the Chicago Sun-Times as well, Ebert gave the film three stars out of four, and he praised the film's animation uh, and compared it to the golden age of Disney, summarizing by saying, quote, the result is a movie like The Great Mouse... The result is a movie like The Great Mouse Detective, which looks more fully animated than anything in some 30 years, mm. end quote. So he was a big fan. Uh, and Siskel also was. Uh, not that we ever care about what Siskel has to say, <laughs> but <laughs> he was also a fan when I, when I found their review. So that's going to do it for this one. We want to remind you, as always, you can head over to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Goodreads, Threads, wherever you can follow us, interact like that. We love to hear your comments. That was a great, a lot of fun getting everybody's comments. Uh, keep doing more of that. Uh, you can also head over to patreon.com slash this film is lit. Support us there. Give us, give us a few bucks a month. Get access to that bonus content. Uh, we just watched uh, Enchanted yesterday. We're going to be recording that episode here tomorrow, and that'll be out by the end of the week. So if you're listening to this when this episode comes out, you should be able to look forward to our Enchanted discussion on Patreon. That's at the $5 level uh, within a few days. And if you support us at the $15 level, you get access to priority recommendations over on Patreon. And this was a patron request by one of our Academy Award winners. Uh, this was a request from Shelby Suderman. There you go. Thank you, Shelby, for your continued support and for recommending The Great Mouse Detective. Katie, where can people watch it? Well, as always, you can check with your local library or a local video rental store if you've still got one. Uh, barring that, you can stream this with a subscription to Disney+. Plus. 
or you can rent it for around four bucks from Apple TV, Amazon, YouTube, Vudu, or DirecTV. There you go. I remembered one of the fun facts about why about the 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 cabaret scene. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, and I think the reason I didn't include this in my notes because I wasn't. I couldn't confirm that it was actually true because it was an IMDb trivia fact. And sure, yeah. Just, and I, I sometimes I'll include those and just say like, who knows, whatever. But this one, I was like, ah, it, it there there was like no citation or even like any reference to where this whether or not this is true. But so, according to the IMDb trivia fact, that scene was part of the reason the film um didn't come out on uh home release for like quite a while. Like oh. it was apparently it or this this is what the comment said that it was they didn't do a home release of this movie as quickly as they could have or would have normally because that scene was potentially an issue supposedly hmm. again i didn't include that note because i was like i don't know how true that is and i couldn't find anything to confirm yeah. that but um I anyways didn't, i didn't even know there was a delay on releasing this supposedly on that, video, that so. again that was what this one we had it on home video <laughs> yes which again it came out in 86 in theater so you know, I don't know when when it came out on. Uh, I could have done that research, but I was just like, ah, this sounds like maybe made up. I, I I'm saying it now, so who knows? I'm just putting maybe misinformation out into who the knows? world. But take that with a full giant uh, spoonful of salt. But anyways, uh, yeah, I'm I'm very much looking forward to watching this because again, it's very interesting. This is one of those, and we have, every now and then we hit one of those where I was like, I remember liking this movie a lot as a kid mm-hmm. and i remember watching it a lot but i remember nothing about it because i haven't seen it since i was like 10 i'm really excited as well um this is another one that i have like a lot of fond memories of watching with my siblings particularly my sister um it's got an iconic villain yeah yeah it was like it's like one of the other ones we did recently i can't remember what it was but i said the same thing of like i know there's gonna be like my i'm gonna have like those brain f- like yeah. it's flood like moments where I'm like, Oh, this see, I probably, I, I bet I remember the cabaret scene when I watch it. <laughs> I bet something uh, like a sleeper soldier, something <laughs> activates in the back of my brain. And I'm like, Oh yeah, no, I remember this scene, but <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure there's going to be lots of moments like that where I'm like, Oh, I remember that. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, right now, it's all blocked somewhere deep yeah. in the in the in the abscesses the of my brain. Yeah, the recesses, abscesses, the recesses <laughs> of my brain. Um, hopefully, I don't have any brain. <laughs> Anyways, that's gonna do it for this prequel episode. We'll see you back in one week's time. We're talking about the Great Mouse Detective. Until that time, guys, gals, and binary pals, and everybody else, keep reading books, keep watching movies, and, and keep, keep being, being awesome. awesome.